Hello. Thank you for listening to the Women's Energy Council podcast, where we explore lessons and advice by some of the most senior female energy executives, focusing on transformational leadership. I'm your host, Alexandra Schiffman. Today we're joined by Olivia Wassanar, a senior partner and co-head of natural resources for Apollo Global Management. Olivia is one of three women we could count as senior partners or managing director level working in private equity in North American energy industry. We will be talking about her accidental entry into this business, how writing skills can translate into building economic models, and getting out of the mindset of you can't be what you can't see. Olivia, very welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. So we always start with uh, asking, just uh, tell us a little bit where you grew up and where you're from. First part of my childhood in New York City and then my family moved to Newport. I am one of four girls, so come from a, a family, very sort of strong, smart women. And that was a huge part of my life growing up. I went to an all-girls school that is very focused on you know, promoting bright, thoughtful, confident women. And that was surrounded by, you know, at a young age, my parents are both writers. You know, we wrote a lot of stories. Everyone had wonderful imaginations and we were always sort of writing things and having my parents edit them and, and you know, making our own books and literary journals and things like that. So that was a you know, big part of my childhood. And my grandfather had been a writer and three of my sisters did writing in some different capacity as part of their career. So I sort of always thought that writing was kind of the path that I would go down and sort of it was sort of what people in my family did. And when you're in all girls school, you know, there's, there's no differentiation. Every, everyone's obviously a girl. And, and so I think that confidence was built from a, a young age. I, I never, I never thought twice about raising my na- hand. I never thought twice about, you know, volunteering up an answer or demonstrating something in a class. There was just a kind of a confidence that was instilled from day one. And I've found myself in a career where, you know, it, it has largely been men that I've been surrounded by. I do think having that confidence from, you know, growing up at an all-girls school, having sisters from an early age has, you know, has, has, has been so important to me. That's interesting. So uh, going back to writing, everyone around you seemed to be uh, either writers or very passionate about writing. And that probably maybe should have been, uh, not should have been, but was on your, on your mind as a career. And then you also went to Harvard and studied literature. So nothing so far says that you will end up in the energy industry. So how did that leap happen? Absolutely. So it was, it was, it was a bit accidental. You know, I, I became a literature major because again, that's what my family did. That's what, that's what I knew. And so, you know, when as a freshman at Harvard, I had to pick my major automatically gravitated towards literature, which was a combination of you know, studying literature is you do it in, in English and in a foreign language. So it's, it's, it's different from, from an English major. It was, so I, I majored in, in, in Spanish literature and in U.S. literature. I loved it and it was, it was fun. I mean, I, like I, I, loved, I loved reading, still love reading. It was wonderful. But I also realized that you know, at some point I needed to figure out what was next. And I, I spent all my summers in college uh, working for a travel guidebook called Let's Go, which is known as the Bible of the Budget Traveler. 
every summer sent, sent researcher writers to countries around the world to travel and write about their experiences and recommend the best youth hostel and the best you know, pizza place to figure out what bus you took to get to, you know, a specific monument. And so I did that in South America uh, and in Southeast Asia. And uh, that was sort of my summers. I never did, never did a formal internship ever. Uh, I never sort of checked the boxes that, that one might think to, you know, to, to end up in the career that I ended up in. But I loved it. I mean, the other thing that I did was I worked as a copy editor, college to make extra money. And uh, that was something that, you know, gave me a incredible attention to detail. Um, I'm I'm still very good to this day at figuring out when a comma has been italicized when it shouldn't be, for example, or extra spaces after a word, things like that. Um, So it gives you a very good critical eye. So here I am graduating college and all of a sudden realizing that I need a job. And I had a good friend who was working at the World Bank who had taken a lot of classes. She had a different major than me, but she and I had taken a lot of classes together. And I was sort of picking her brain um, about what what she was doing and uh and she said you know funnily enough my boss just asked me if you know she she was joking about how she wished she could clone me and asked me if i had any friends and you know and, and i thought of you and so she was working in the environmentally and socially sustainable development division of the world bank for a woman named kristalina georgieva who is now uh head of the imf and uh, so my friend said, hey, you know, would you be interested? Let me, let me sort of check. And so I flew down to Washington. I had an interview. I had none of the skills that they were looking for. But, but I think, you know, they looked at my resume and they thought, okay, she went to Harvard. She had good grades. You know, she worked every summer. And, uh, you know, she's probably a good learner. So I got a job working for Kristalina. And, uh, and that was sort of the start of my career. Um, that was really more on the energy side of things. Uh, or I should say more on the environment side of things that point in my career but that was sort of my that was really my start so it was somewhat accidental and I do have you know I a, a couple things I sort of took from that one you know those friendships and relationships are so critical had it not been for for my former classmate who was willing to recommend me um, I would have never started at such a wonderful institution at the World Bank and then separately working for Kristalina who was and is an amazing role model a you know very smart extremely accomplished woman you know, who, who led a team and now obviously leads the, you know, the full IMF. That was, for me, really inspiring and, and a sort of a, a really, it was really wonderful to start out my career working for such a strong, smart woman. That was March 2002. So you haven't left the yes, energy industry that was a long time since ago. then. <laughs> <laughs> no. And so after that, so Kristalina actually had encouraged me. There was a program called, uh, it's at Yale, the Yale School of Forestry and the Environment. And Christina, Crystalina was very involved there and she'd actually encouraged me to look there. And so I actually ended up going there and focusing, I went to a master's program there, mainly on, on energy there. And, and I love that. And that was wonderful and, 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 and so fascinating. You know, I, I sort of got there and realized that I didn't want to do a PhD, that my preference would be to, to do something more on the business side. And uh, I actually applied to Wharton, um, which is where my husband was going. So we, um, we moved to Philadelphia. I went to Wharton. Uh, and from there, I, I got an internship in the energy group or natural resources group, I should say, Goldman Sachs at that point in time. And that was sort of how I began my sort of energy finance career was, was starting at Goldman Sachs after Wharton. And so I really did make that, you know, a pretty quick shift, you know, to working on the real finance side of the energy business. And, and the, you know, the funny thing is I started out wanting to do more 
renewable energy. And that had been something that I, you know, I, I developed a love for while I was at the World Bank. When I sort of came to Goldman Sachs in, in 2006, there were not a ton of opportunities on the, you know, wind, solar, you know, broader renewable side. So, you know, I did get to work on that a little bit. I, you know, I worked a lot on, you know, on, on pipeline companies and power companies and, you know, lots of sort of different, different sectors of the natural resources space and developed a, you know, a pretty broad knowledge working there. So, you know, sort of dabbled in a lot of things. And then in 2008, I joined Riverstone Holdings, which is an energy focused private equity firm. And again, similar, I sort of got there and I said, you know, I was like, I'd really love to do wind and solar. And they sort of said, hey, okay, we'll put you on this one solar deal. But by the way, here's a E&P company and a natural gas storage company, you know, that we're also going to have you work on as well. And just as, as time went on, you know, there were, you know, there were fewer private equity type deals at that point in time that met the return holder, like that met return hurdles in the renewable side. Um, and there are more private equity deals where you could earn your know, 20% plus rate of return on the, on the conventional energy side. And so I really ended up spending most of my time focused on conventional energy, even though, you know, sort of between the World Bank and then Yale, you know, I really always kind of wanted to do renewables. I ended up getting refocused and, and, and was lucky enough to, to, to build a, a really, you know, interesting career around, you know, more traditional areas of the energy sector did, did, you know, worked on a few solar deals along the way, but, but, but predominantly, you know, midstream and EMP. Right. And if we just scroll back a little bit, you, you haven't left the energy industry at any point since you entered, since you started your career. Nope. So what was it about the energy industry that you thought this is for me? And even though you, you know, you already said you couldn't necessarily work on all the deals you wanted, and you ended up in more conventional side, but what was it about the energy sector itself that you felt you can contribute to? Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I loved it. And I will say, even though I started out, you know, wanting to focus more on renewables, you know, I developed a love of, of, of oil and gas community and the people and, and the, you know, sort of macroeconomics that drive that sector. And so, you know, I think you, you know, you end up, you know, I was someone who I've always just loved to work, you know, whether it was at school and, you know, trying to get good grades or, you know, or, you know, in my jobs, and I, I've always sort of, I, I dive into whatever I do. And so when I got staffed in that first EMP deal, I dove in and I, and I was going to learn everything I possibly could, you know, at age, whatever it was, 20, 28 about ENP. And gosh, I was going to be the best ENP, you know, sort of model builder or whatever it was at that point in time. That, uh, that that I possibly could be. So and and, and I will say that the, the sector embraced me too. I, I you know I the first deal that I ever worked on uh, in ENP was was with a management team called Three Rivers, and we ended up you know doing three deals with the Three Rivers team that were you know extremely successful deals. And they you know they really taught me you know the CEO and the CFO really taught me ENP at sort of that point in time. And and you know, it was a great partnership and, you know, they made a lot of broader introductions for me. And, and, and so that was sort of a wonderful start, but I, you know, I, I the, the macroeconomics of it all, you know, I, I, as I mentioned before, you know, I started my, in college, I worked as a travel writer and, um, you know, we always joke that it was a great career for people who love to travel, love to write. You know, I, I did love the fact that energy is a global industry and that understanding the, you know, especially on the, on the oil side, you know, understanding sort of the global fundamentals around oil really impacts the decisions we make domestically and, and otherwise. And that, you know, that macroeconomic understanding is, 
the jade, a fundamental thing to have. And so I, I, did, I did really love the global nature of it. I started my career, you know, the World Bank, you know, traveling a lot internationally and with a sort of true international career. And when I was at Riverstone, I spent a lot of time up in Calgary. And I remember my husband once joking with me. He said, see, Olivia, here, you've got, uh, you've got the international career you always wanted. You know, you go to Canada once a month. <laughs> That was, uh, you know, sort of a, you know, a, a joke we always had. But, um, but no, I, I, I have always loved it. I've appreciated it. The really interesting sector filled with a lot of, you know, very smart, thoughtful people. And, you know, and it's been a lot of fun. I can definitely, it, it rings bells uh, with me that oil and gas sector or energy definitely seems to attract this type of personality who, you know, is very tenacious, very passionate. I don't think I've ever met a non-passionate <laughs> uh, oil and gas exec and definitely the love of travel uh, features in that in that personality for sure so I can I can relate when we uh, we spoke in the past about the scarcity of women when it comes to private equity and financing sector but especially private equity and I think we've managed to name about four that we know in the Americas or in North America to be more precise. Do you feel like it was ever hard because you're a woman? No, I mean, listen, I, we, we, we all have our stories, right? You know, we have, I have stories about going out to do due diligence on, you know, on an asset and the guy's asking, I was a, I think I was a principal at the time and there was an associate with me and, you know, a few years younger to me and more junior to me and, and, and telling him how nice it was that he brought his assistant along. Uh, I think I think they even used the word secretary. I think oh, they said, oh, it's so nice that you bring your secretary on these trips. And he said, no, she's my boss. You know, so we all have kind of those those stories for sure. You know, I always found kindness in the industry, even if I was the only woman. You know, always felt that people were. I never felt you know excluded. I always felt that people you know certainly did want to include me, even if they weren't used to having having a woman in the room. I, I also think there's something about being remembered. You know, there are, and I have a pretty good memory for names and faces, but I will say as sort of the the only woman in the room for so many years, people remember you, um, which I've always felt is a, is a huge benefit in my career. You know, people have reached out to sort of, you know, bounce ideas off of me, you know, whether it's deal, deal ideas or otherwise, because they met me at something and they remembered me because I, I stood out. So I do think that that was always, you know, that was always an advantage um, that, I, that I did have. And so I don't think, you know, it, there, there obviously, you know, there, there were some, there, there were some tougher things, golf games that, uh, that you didn't get included in or, or boys trips or otherwise hunting trips, you know, whatever it was that, you know, you didn't kind of get the look for. Every woman who's been in the sector has those instances of, of, of things historically that, that maybe they didn't get included in because, you know, just by virtue of being a woman. But I do think that there are benefits. I do think being remembered, you know, I, I think people listen when you talk because sometimes, because sometimes it's a rarity, right? And so I think that's, that's certainly, you know, that's certainly been a benefit too. You know, I thought certainly very hard to be taken seriously at, at, at different points in my career just because, you know, people just saying like, oh, I think there, there, were, there were people who were sometimes a bit dismissive, like, you know, like the instance I told you when they, they thought I was the, you know, I was the, I was the uh, secretary who come to the, the, who come to the site visit. And so, you know, having those instances, sure that you make yourself known in discussion that you have something thoughtful to say, you know, my perspective has always been, you don't need to speak the whole time, but you just need to make sure that what you say is, is, is thoughtful, well, and well informed. And, you know, and also, you know, in a meeting or conversation, you know, making sure that you're speaking fairly early on uh, in the meeting to sort of establish yourself as, as someone who, 
um, is going to be impactful to the discussion and, and, a, and a decision maker. So that was something that I, was, I, I always kept in mind. The other thing I will say is I had some really good sponsors and mentors over the years who, who one, made sure to include me, but two, made sure to, you know, sort of focus on my professional development. And I think that is so important. And, and for me, working in largely, in some cases, almost entirely all-male, you know, groups or teams, you know, those were men. And they were people who, who just had identified me as someone who, you know, was was hardworking and thoughtful and, and, and wanted to do well and, you know, and, and, and made sure that they gave me good exposure to interesting deals or opportunities who took me to board meetings, even when I was very junior and gave me that very good exposure. And so I do, I give a lot of credit to staying in the industry to a lot of those men who were really my mentors and sponsors over time. That's amazing. And uh, I'm, I'm of the same opinion that y- you need to turn what you have into an advantage. I've heard about this study where as if you're in sales, it probably depends on the region, but as a woman, you get about 20 seconds more on the phone than a man uh, because... <laughs> so so you, you, you just need to, to find an advantage in the situation that you're in. And, you know, exactly, you, you will be remembered a lot of... Uh, attendees at, at our events remember me as you know this lady in a stripy dress and yes I am <laughs> that that person in a stripy dress and it's fine if that's how they remember me that's great that's better than you wore this blue suit or dark gray suit like everyone else I'd rather go for the first one yeah absolutely no I've I've, I've always tried to use it as my advantage you know and and you sort of you know in this profession especially like, you kind of are who you are right you're not going to kind of change that. And so it's, you know, it's making sure that it's viewed in a positive way and, and not in a negative way. And, and, but I absolutely agree. I think, you know, I, I always kind of focus on like, how do I use this? How do I make this a positive thing that I'm the only woman in this meeting and not a negative thing? Absolutely. And you said something before we started uh, this podcast and this phrase really stuck with me is the, you know, you can't be what you can't see. Can you, just explain that a little bit for our audience, because I think that really rings true to yeah. a lot of people. Absolutely. Years ago, I read, you know, a, a great article on Sally Ride, who was the first female astronaut. She talked in the article about how growing up, she, you know, she loved the idea of astronauts, but she didn't think she could be an astronaut because there weren't any women astronauts. She just assumed that there was, there was some reason that women could not be astronauts. And what she realized was, no, it's just that there, there had never been one. And so, you know, her line is, uh, you can't be what you can't see. You know, if you don't see women in that role, oftentimes you think that women can't be in that role, when the reality is there just hasn't been one yet. And so I think that was true for Sally Ride for, you know, as an astronaut. And I think that's true for a lot of women in private equity is we just haven't had as many women, you know, who have had occupied senior roles. And so, it's so important and there are a lot of really, you know, wonderful, successful women who, who do occupy those roles in the areas that the outside of energy, there have been probably fewer in energy. But I think showing people, you know, that uh, whether it's a female CEO of a company or a female senior executive in private equity or a female energy executive in private equity, that there are, you know, that there are women who have had that role. So it's, it, it, it's absolutely possible and, 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 and 100% achievable. 
like to think so and so we're still in a in a situation now where as we discussed there are only a few uh partner and managing director level in private equity but you uh did mention in the pipeline and i do feel for my experience too that the pipeline is definitely growing so do you feel that situation is changing there are more women in energy and will be more absolutely absolutely you know, I love going to events or conferences. You know, my partner, Christine Hamas, and I, uh, we host an event in Houston every year focused on women in energy and finance. And we are always so so thrilled. And we, we open it to, you know, to every level. And then, you know, what we generally do is encourage people to sort of forward along the invitation. But I, but I think I'm always so excited when, you know, a 25-year-old woman from an investment bank comes in and says, you know, I, I want to go into private equity or, you know, I meet a I meet a young woman at another private equity firm, you know, who's starting out in energy. And I, I do really think there is an amazing pipeline of, of very smart, talented, thoughtful ambitious women who are interested in energy and are interested in private equity. And I, I do think that we're going to start to see many, many more women occupy these roles You know, as, as time goes on. I think we talk about this in a lot of industries, but, but energy and, and private equity are, are similar. You know, it's, it's all about building that pipeline, making sure that sort of the bigger the pipeline is, you know, the more people who are going to, who are going to make it to the top. And so we always, I, I always try and encourage women to stay in it, even if they don't work for us. Or when I, when I interview women and, you know, I always say, I want to be a friend and mentor to you, even if you choose, you know, not to work at my firm, even if you accept an offer at another firm, let's play, let's please stay in touch because I think, you know, part of it is just making sure that, you know, there are more women who go into this sector more broadly, um, you know, whether they choose to work. Um, you know, and I, and I will say, you know, I, I mentioned, I mentioned Christine before. I mean, I, I have a partner from who's, who's a woman and, and she's fantastic. And, you know, I think we, you know, we have found that it's so impactful when we talk to and interview young women just to, you know, to see two, two senior women, you know, in this role and um, who've had long careers in private equity. You know, I just think it's, you know, first of all, the, we get a lot of people who are, um, who are just, you know, amazed that, that there are kind of two of us, not just one, but two. But, you know, but I do think that that is an encouraging thing to see. Absolutely. And I look forward to the time when I put a program together and the private equity panel has at least half a discussion of half the panelists as women. That is my dream, maybe. Absolutely. Uh, very soon. And you hit on <laughs> such a good point, Hugh, because I, I think that, you know, one of the things for so long, and it's this, I think we need to get over the idea of having one woman. It's like, oh, we have a woman in this role, in this meeting, in this whatever, you know, on this board, whatever it is, and and feeling like you're checking that box because you have that one woman. And the reality is we should be figuring out, you know, how we can get as many women as possible, right? One is one great, and that's a wonderful start, but that shouldn't be like, okay, we check the box, we have that woman, we can move on, which is what I, I do find happens sometimes in 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 corporate America, but we should, we as women should be thinking about how we can fill that table, how we fill the boardroom. It shouldn't just be about that kind of one seat. So what, what can be done, you feel, on the management level? Because it's not just responsibility of women to bring more women into the company. It's, you know, it is the management decision to, to either look, I mean, I don't know if you do it for quotas, if you believe in them, but what, what can the companies and especially private equity companies do to bridge that gap? Yeah, I think something that we all that we all should be doing it. It is an accountability point. I do think it's it's something that that should be something that we all think about. 
women, men, you know, everyone throughout an organization, you know, should be thinking about, you know, how, you know, how do we do this? How do we promote this? I, I'm a big fan, as I mentioned before, on, on, on mentorship and sponsorship. I think that's so important, whether it comes from women or men. I found actually some of my best mentors have been men. And a lot of them, by the way, were fathers of daughters. And I think that's so important because a lot of these guys look at their daughters and they want the world for their daughters. They want their daughters to be as successful as, as they have been. And I think when they look at how few women occupy the roles that they've occupied, it's inspiring for them to say, okay, like I, the more women that I help, that I mentor, that I sponsor, the more opportunities there are going to be for my daughters down the road. And so I, I've actually found that that's been a great source of, of mentorship for me over the years has been from, 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 from fathers of daughters. Um, and, and they often say that to me, they'll say, you know, I've got three girls, you know, I've got two daughters or, you know, or whatever it is. And I think it's really wonderful, but that'd be something that we all think about. And, and then we're all accountable for too. That is part of, you know, how we think about our businesses, how we, and by the way, diversity goes way beyond just women. And it's, it's not about, it's just about diversity, it's about inclusion as well. And, and that sort of element of care and making sure that, that not only are we, you know, hiring those women, but we are focused on the experience that they're having and retention and making sure that that woman that we're hiring as an associate is a has every opportunity and, and mentorship and the support she needs along her path, you know, to grow the organization as well. It's an interesting point you raise because uh, I've been recently reading a lot more around how COVID-19 affects different genders differently, as well as ethnic minorities, actually. And it's uh, interestingly to know that even though double the amount of men die from COVID-19 than women, their women economically are a lot more affected because they're quite, they're a lot more likely to be single parents, number one. So they're absolutely unable to work from home when they have to homeschool or take care of very small little children. Uh, and second, they occupy the vast majority, I think around 60% of part-time jobs that are not eligible for uh, they will be the first to go, you know, made redundant, and they're not uh, eligible to the same benefits as some of the full-time staff, for example. Do you feel like this current situation will teach us a little bit more how to be more compassionate, not just towards women, but I guess because women are so highly affected economically by the current crisis, and now suddenly everyone is being a lot more flexible around working from home and hours and a lot more understanding. Do you think the companies will be a little bit more accommodating or do you feel like that will be a trigger to, to make some women's lives a little bit easier? Um, I, I hope so. And it's obviously something that, that I've been thinking a lot about. I've got three small children who are all doing distance learning right now. And I talked to a lot of my friends and I think in many families, even with two working parents, when both parents are home, things disproportionately fall on the mother. So whether it is, you know, the cooking, the cleaning, the education of the children, the laundry, whatever it is, most, you know, a few articles about, you know, women being surveyed and saying, you know, they are taking a disproportionate amount of the sort of responsibilities in the home right now. I'm so fortunate that I have a husband who, uh, who, who, who frankly, you know, doesn't just split things with me. The majority of the, the majority of the responsibilities in our home, and that's you know a decision that we made years ago when when my career was going really well, and he said that he wanted to be supportive and and take on more of that. And so I was so always, I've always been so grateful for that. But um, but I do think.